We'll be in the book of Revelation this morning, chapter 3. You take your Bibles and turn there. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, and he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which is cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Our Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments that, Lord, you might guide us through this text. Lord, help us to understand the setting. Lord, what you intended to say to this local church at the time they existed. And then, Lord, I pray you'd help us to make application for it for our time and our day in this church. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The opening chapters of the book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse, identifies the author of the book, of the writing, of course, as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the Lord conveys this letter, this book, uh, via an angelic interpreter to John for uh, recording, not just for the day in which John wrote, but also, of course, for all of history. These opening chapters, chapters 2, two and 3, were directed specifically to churches. These would have been churches, um, when I say like ours, they would have been local assemblies of saved believers called out to serve the Lord in those places. But there were seven historical churches that existed in Asia Minor, what is known today as modern-day Turkey. Uh, this would have been maybe the, the most Western expansion of Christianity at that day. And John... Of course, I should say the Lord, through John, wrote seven letters specifically to these seven churches. And today, the writing brings us to the sixth church, or the church in the city called Philadelphia. Again, Revelation 2 and 3 is made up of these seven individual letters that have been combined that we call the larger book of Revelations in chapter 2 and 3. And we are told here something fascinating, something quite encouraging, also probably a little bit sobering, is that the Lord walks in the midst of His churches. And of course, if that was true then, it's no doubt still true today, that the Lord walks in the midst of His churches, and He, he, has, he has opinions about what happens here. He's paying attention to what is done. Um, it, it's an amazing thing that the Lord would notice how we sing today. 
and whether it's heartfelt and sincere and and meaningful to us. That the, the Lord pays attention to our offering today. That the Lord pays attention to the, how we would be attentive in, in these next few moments and, and how we take heed to His Word. And that if the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts, how, how we might respond to that. It's an amazing thought that the Lord is here where two or three more are gathered. The Lord is in our midst. Here is this church, this assembly. The Lord is here. And He has an opinion about how we do church and what we're doing. And He certainly did in this day as well. Of course, His presence was meant to strengthen and support these churches. Uh, they were going through an incredibly difficult time. They were under, enduring great persecution. And so the Lord's presence was, was meant to be an encouragement. But the Lord's presence also brought some thoughts. And, and He writes these things down in these letters. And sometimes these are words of encouragement, sometimes words of admonition. And the Lord's intent is to prepare them for the judgment to come, the, the greater reality that what we experience now is not all that there is. A great day of judgment will come. And the Lord wants us to be ready and prepared for that day. Well, Philadelphia was no different. The church there was no different than the previous five churches in that it too existed in a hostile environment to Christianity. At this time, Rome had not yet embraced Christianity at all. As a whole, the Christians of Asia Minor were enduring great persecution. Many had been martyred. Many more would be. Um, John himself was a victim of, of, of that persecution, having spent time on the Isle of Patmos, where most likely he wrote these letters or at least received the vision then came home later and, and wrote them. But these churches, these church members of Philadelphia were going through that persecution as well. They're, they were experiencing the peril of death. Um, of having been relocated from their homes and, and, and now maybe starting this new church. And their options were really just two, to be loyal to Christ or to recant and to compromise with the world that was pressing them to vacate their beliefs, not, not to hold Christianity as a truth. And that was really Christianity's early options. In Philadelphia, this was a small church. It was a young church. But we are told it was commended. It was a faithful church. It's, it's, it was one of only two churches of these seven letters that had no negative um, critique. All that's spoken here are really just words of commendation uh, from the Lord. Uh, Philadelphia <coughs> itself, the city, um, was not ancient like the other cities. It was, it was relatively young. It was founded somewhere around the year 185 B.C. So it was only as a city about 200 years old. I know that sounds a long time. As a nation, we're not much older than that. But in antiquity, these other cities were much older. This city was relatively young, again, about two centuries old. It was founded by a king uh, of that time called Pergamus. His name was Eumenes. And King Eumenes had a younger brother. And the younger brother to King Eumenes, the king of Pergamos, was very faithful. He was loyal to his brother. He did not aspire to his brother's throne. He served him in, in, in great loyalty and fidelity. And so in time, as a reward, um, when King Eumenes stepped off the scene, uh, this new king was rewarded by being given the throne. Now, his name was Attalus, but he had a nickname. And his nickname was a version of Philadelphia. 
And the idea was, he is the brother whom I love. And so King Eumenes had this brother who was faithful. And by the way, being faithful is a theme that we'll see throughout this particular letter. Um, and he says, here's the brother whom I love. And so that's where we get the idea today of Philadelphia being the city of brotherly love because it was the love that was born out of faithfulness to another. The city is unique. Uh, in our study, we've learned a little bit about each city. It was not a military outpost, as many cities were. It sat on a, 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 in a little valley. It did reside up about an 800-foot hill. It was probably somewhat defensible, but it was really not a military outpost. Um, it, it was not a great economic center. Um, you know, be like Ephesus that's resided on the port. Um, it was not like that, or Pergamos. It wasn't a religious center. Um, Philadelphia was actually founded by Greeks. And um, you've probably heard the word Hellenism before. Uh, Hellenism was a philosophy of, of Greek thinking that um, really has strongly influenced Western culture even in this day. We are strongly influenced by Greek Hellenistic thinking. Um, but Philadelphia was a missionary outpost. Now, not in the way we think about missionaries, but it was a missionary outpost for Hellenistic Greek thinking. This was the place where the Greek language in part spread to much of the area of Palestine. At the time of writing, this city had been so effective in spreading Hellenistic culture that really the entire region of Turkey, all the way down into uh, Palestine, as we know, the Lord and disciples for the most part, they spoke Greek. So this city was very faithful in the endeavor originally given to it almost 200 years later to be a uh, outpost spreading Hellenistic Greek thinking and the language. Um, and it continued to serve that purpose even during the Roman occupation at the time of writing of John. It's an interesting thing to note, again, in all these thoughts, that loyalty and steadfastness is a theme. And that was actually true of the church itself. We don't know the exact histories of all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and how long they existed and, and when they died. But we do know this, the church at Philadelphia stayed intact as a local New Testament church well into the 14th century. Now that's, that's, a, that's a long, long time. And, and, and we don't know the exact demise of it during that time, but for well over a century, this church shined, it was faithful, it was true, it endured even the time of the, of the great Muslim persecutions. It was an example of faithfulness. Well, the text opens in our study, Revelation chapter 3 of the Church of Philadelphia, opens once again, as all the letters have, with Jesus identifying himself as the author of the letter. Now, in the previous five letters, as Jesus opened up his letter, he made some reference to himself um, that was rehearsed or echoed from chapter 1. So if we were to go back in chapter 1, and I don't remember the verses, maybe 7 through there a little bit, um, Jesus, you know, called himself a, a number of, of, you know, he expressed his deity, his omniscience, um, you know, his, his, his uh, presence. But in chapter, or sorry, this uh, sixth church, Jesus does something very different. For the first time, he doesn't go back and echo the thoughts from chapter 1, but rather he identifies himself from the language of the Old Testament. And that's interesting, and it has, he has purpose there because it has relevance to what he's going to say in the letter. 
He calls himself basically three things in the opening verse here of our study this morning. He calls himself holy. He calls himself holy. Secondly, he calls himself true. And then he says, I'm the one who possesses the king of David. Now, these three thoughts have a lot of Old Testament imagery to them. Um, of course, we understand this, that holiness, there's none holy but God. And so when Jesus is calling himself holy here, he is basically saying that he is God. He's expressing his deity. And the point of that would be, he's, he's basically saying, I am the ultimate and most important reality of life. There are other things pressing upon you right now. There are other things you may be suffering, but never forget, I'm God. And serving me and my holiness is the ultimate priority. And so that's in part why he rehearses this. When he says he's true, it's the same thought again. I am true. It's a reference to reality. Uh, and that's contextual. See, the greater reality is that these people were feeling the pressure of the persecution and the circumstance around them. But Jesus wanted them to understand that's not the ultimate truth. That's not the ultimate reality. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, the Apostle Paul rehearsed this. He says, while we look not on the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so Jesus is saying, I am God and I am, I am true. You may be you may feel pressure all around you to acquiesce and to compromise, but you don't forget who I am and you don't forget serving me is the greatest reality of life. The greatest reality. God said in this present world, we might have struggles, but to serve him was the greatest thing that we could do with our lives. And we were to serve him. And then he says, I have the keys of David. Now, David, in the Old Testament was Israel's most beloved and revered king. But he also was tied to the Messiah. And the Bible tells that the, from, the, from the tribe of Judah, from which David was, that a Messiah would arise. So by Jesus saying, I have the keys of David, he's saying, I have David's position. I have David's title. I have David's power. I have David's authority. And, and I am David's heir and holding these kings. But specifically, the key here refer to access and control over entry. And for our purposes, it basically means this. Jesus Christ is the one and only name under heaven whereby men can be saved and or have access into the city of God or the kingdom of God. That's his, his thinking here. I have the keys to the kingdom. And no one gets in past me unless I say okay. And no one can shut the door to the kingdom, unless I say okay. So he's really pressing a point. I'm God. I represent the greatest reality. And by the way, as that great reality, I, I, I am the one who controls who goes to heaven and who doesn't. I, I, it, it's my determination who goes into the new heavenly city, Jerusalem, one day, who enters the millennial kingdom and, and serves God, and, and who does not. And all of that is important to our text in just a moment. His, he, he's making a, a, a very hard point. No one else has this power and authority but me. Now for context for that, we can look in verses 8 and 9 very quickly. Let's, let's look there and rehearse that. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And now he starts referencing who he is and that he's the only one who can open and shut the door to the kingdom of God, salvation. 
He says, I, I have set before thee an open door. No one can shut it, basically, but me. For that's a little strength, and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Then verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews that are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. In the context of our, of our chapter, the Philadelphia Christians were few in number. We know this historically. They, they were not a large church initially. And they were most, for the most part, not of any rank in society. They were most likely probably poor. Um, they would not have come from a higher socioeconomic class. But they were recognized for being faithful and true in the midst of persecution, but a very unique kind of persecution. It would be not dissimilar to the other churches. But in Philadelphia, there was a very large Jewish community. And many, most likely, of the believers from the Church of Philadelphia were Jews who practiced Judaism, but then were saved. Um, these were people who came to Christ from the Jewish religion. And they didn't think about Christianity like we do. So you know, we, we look at today, Christianity is, we're, we're Christians and they're Jews and it's very separate. But these, these Jews who were being saved were thinking, well, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, this is what the Old Testament talks about, that Jesus would come and be a Messiah, He'd be our Savior. So they, they saw Christianity kind of as, a, as the outgrowth or the natural extension of Judaism. And so they still had reverence for the temple. They still, they still cared greatly about Jewish community. And they weren't looking for the law to save them, but they still had great love and affection for the community and for the temple. Uh, and there would have been any local temple in these cities. But what is effectively happening is that in Philadelphia, these Christians were being excommunicated. Okay, and not just, not just excommunicated, but they were no longer allowed to visit any of the temple grounds. They, they, they were not allowed to be part of any Jewish community. If they had any family, and they obviously would have had family, those ties were broken. They were severed. They were shunned. They, they, they couldn't be spoken to. They, they, they had to be turned away from in, in the streets. And, 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 and this was a great hurt to them, and, and, and no doubt a great harm to their heart. They thought they were just followers of Christ, and you know, this is an extension of the Old Testament. But the Jews here in the synagogue in Philadelphia, they hated the Christians. And, and, and they, they were excommunicating them and ostracizing them from every element of community and society. This is harsh language, but this is why, why the Lord calls them the synagogue of Satan. See, the, the people who were treating the Christians so poorly in Philadelphia, they were, they were mostly from Jewish descent. And they were Jews ethnically. They were Jews religiously. They were Jews socially, culturally. But here's the thing. In God's eyes, you're not a Jew unless you're a Jew spiritually. And the Testament makes that clear. And so, having not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they're now actually fighting against this infant Christianity. They're fighting, against, they're fighting against themselves in so many ways. And so the Lord calls them the synagogue of Satan. And they were not following the Lord and they were actually hurting His cause. And they claimed, and some false teachers claimed, that if you want to be a Christian, that's fine, but you're going to observe some of the works of the law as well. But that's not what they were doing. 
So what they were saying, okay, so like if you guys were Jews who were converted, they were saying, okay, you guys will never enter into God's kingdom. This is what they would have been hearing. You'll, you'll never go to the New Jerusalem. You'll never see the holy city that's going to be rebuilt one day. You'll, you'll never know everlasting life. This is what the, the Jews of the city were saying to the early Christian church. Okay? So this explains the language of the text. And so Jesus is saying, not true. Not true. He's saying this. First of all, I'm God. And what I say is true. And by the way, I have the keys to the city. That's what he's saying. And I'm the guy who opens and closes the door and not them. And, the, and, and Judaism is not the one who, who guards the gates. And there's religions today that still try to guard the gates in, in of themselves. Uh, and no man, no church, no religion has the keys to the kingdom of heaven and salvation but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, and that's the language here that the Lord employs. And so the Lord looks at this church and says, I got the keys. I've, I'll open the door. And these guys over here, they can't open or shut it. No one can think about that. I'm, I'm the one. So you serve me despite this, this, this pressure. And so he looks at them and he says, um, I know they works. And of course, the Lord said this in every church. He looks at them. You know, I'd be a little terrified if the Lord came in here and stood up here and said, I know they works. I thought, oh, Lord, help us. I'm not sure what he would say. But he looks at this small church. He says, I know thy works. And he basically says this, you have strength. And it'd be great to hear, wouldn't it be? You have strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name, even under persecution and peril and false teaching. In the text, you know, we read it this way. They have little strength. And we see that like it's a little bit disparaging. But it's, it's not meant to be in the text. It's basically saying this, you're just a, few group, a, a small group of people in a great big environment under a whole lot of persecution, and, and from this little place you have strength. That's, it's actually a very neat commendation. It's not that you have you know, little strength, strength. It's not that idea. It's just there's not a lot of you, but even though there's not a lot of you, you have strength. That's what he's saying. You have strength. It's an identification of the smallness of their number in such an overwhelming situation. And, and it's, it's the idea of strength in comparison to great persecution. Um, though they were small, and mad love the Lord said this of us, though you're small, you have enough strength to have great influence. And you're changing the city. And you've used that strength of God to remain loyal and true. And in verse 9 he says, for this strength you will be rewarded one day in verse 9. So he talks about the synagogue of Satan, these Jews. But he begins to say, now, by being faithful to you, here's what you're going to receive. <clears throat> these very people who are persecuting you and lying to you and telling you that you can't get into the kingdom of heaven, he says, one day those people are going to recognize their foolishness and folly. And they're going to fall down at your feet and recognize that I loved you in that, basically, you were right and they were wrong. But here's the thing, and I'm not persuaded about this. See, no doubt there would be a sense of that. When we go to, when people who are lost go to judgment, they're going to have some sense, obviously, that they were mistaken in their beliefs and failed to believe. And they're going to, they're going to look at what we did in some measure and lament that they did not do that. So that could be part of what he's referencing here. Or, or it could be simply this. Um, 
that if you stay faithful and true, that one day the very people who are persecuting you may come and join you in worship one day. And they're going to come and fall down right here where, you, where you're at, and they're going to repent and accept Christ as Savior. Now, I don't know which of two of those that is, but either one is a proper motivation for me to continue to be faithful. I like the thought that if I'm good to those who hate me long enough, that one day they might choose to join me in serving Christ. And that very well could be the reward they receive. We just stay faithful. These people who are fighting us so hard may actually come and join our ranks one day. Not so much vindication, but just excitement and encouragement for being faithful in that way. Now, verse 10 is interesting. And so look there with me. It says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. And there's some specific language employed here, which shall come upon the, all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Okay. Everybody take a deep breath. You with me? Okay. <laughs> this speaks of a, an experience, evidently, wouldn't know how much the language here is symbolic, of something that will befall the earth one day that all of humanity will experience. Now, there's two thoughts about this verse that I'm going to go through to do due diligence to the text. But just realize there's some debate about this. The idea of the word kept here says, I will keep you from this great tribulation that is to come, is that the, the word keep means protected. Okay? First um, Peter chapter 1, the Bible tells us we will be kept until the day of salvation. Okay, what's that, what's that mean? That our salvation is safe in Christ until we die or He comes back. You understand that? So we are kept, that we are kept safe. We may experience a great amount of difficulty, persecution, but our salvation is kept sure. It's kept safe. Okay, well, in the text, um, it indicates that there's going to be a great persecution that's going to come. Whether in their time or not, I don't know. And <clears throat> that they would escape that hour. I, I want you to check your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 very quickly with me. 1 Peter chapter 3. And verse, I'm sorry, chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, I said 3, but I'm going to start my reading there. I want you to see this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercies hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. This is a promise of eternal security. Okay, so everybody look up here. What Peter could be saying, I'm sorry, John could be saying to these people, is that you're about to go through a great difficulty, but I'm going to keep you in it. You follow me? You're going to be kept. Your salvation will be intact. You can keep your faith. It's, it's the idea maybe that they'd be protected from a, in the midst of a great persecution. They were already going through a great persecution. And this is perhaps a promise just you'll be safe, maybe not physically, but spiritually through this. Okay, there's another possibility of what verse 10 means. Others believe that this is an eschatological promise about God keeping Christians in general from the great judgment or the torment that we call the great tribulation to come. 
In other words, there's some thinking that what he's saying here is God, Lord kind of speaks beyond them and, and says to all of us churches that in belonging to me, that you will escape basically what is we described as one day hell on earth. Okay? It's 1122 and my time is short. <laughs> you thought I'd come back and, and be more concise. The Bible teaches that there, um, there are still seven years of Jewish time to be fulfilled. The last seven years of that Jewish time are Daniel's, it's called in the book of Daniel, Daniel's 70th week. Uh, Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's troubles. And the Bible describes a coming day of judgment that you and I call the Great Tribulation. And it's a time of unimaginable sorrow, uh, unimaginable grief, of disease, of war, famine, um, the, a significant population of the earth is destroyed and, and wiped out. It's, it is spoken of in many of the pages of Revelation to come that we will talk about. It's full of plagues and demons and is governed by the Antichrist and his beast and of course Satan himself. And in the New Testament, um, there's some description of this, but there's also a description of an event called the rapture. Amen. Okay. We call this the parousia. It's, it's, it's a word that means that there's a time that the Bible indicates that when Christ, um, church at large, when Jesus Christ will come back before the tribulation to receive us up into the clouds of the sky with him. Um, and that's where we'll receive what's called the Bema Seat Judgment or our rewards. And then the tribulation will ensue. And then you and I, it's one of my favorite thoughts. We'll come back at the end of tribulation on white horses because it's about riding a horse to the sky. Sounds really cool to me. <laughs> With the Lord at the end of that seven years to thwart Satan's plan and the Antichrist at that time. And then that would enter in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Right. And then Christ would be, uh, Satan would be allowed one more time to, to do his thing. And then the ultimate end comes, the great white throne judgment and death and hell and Satan and all the ungodly are cast into hell. <sighs> so what's the point? Some believe that verse 10 is a reference to that. That he's basically saying that as a child of God, no one's going to go through hell on earth. No one's going to experience that great day. You'll be kept from that great tribulation. Uh, the rapture being referenced in John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll talk more about that to come. Okay, so the point, can I stop here for a second? The point may be um, that as pre-tribulationist Christians, which by the way, that's our doctrinal position, that we should find encouragement knowing that one day that we're, we're not going to face that great wrath. And that for these Philadelphia Christians, that though you're suffering, you will not go through, quote unquote, hell on earth. That some people will one day. Um, that the time of the rapture, that, that before, right after that, would be a time of unimaginable um, awfulness. But I, let me just say this, okay? I'm just trying to do diligence to the text. Regardless, the Bible teaches, um, you know, we're going to believe both views. Um, I would certainly argue for a, tree, a pre tribulation rapture for Christians. And I would also argue this no matter what we go through, God can keep us. That's right. 
Is that fair? Okay, so I'm just going to go with both those things. Is that okay with you? In that um, God can keep us. So in verse 11 then, he says, God goes back to the original. I want you to have the right perspective of life. Time passes fast. And life passes fast. And so too will your present circumstances. They seem really demanding right now, but you need to persevere. And if you persevere, and the rest of the text is saying, here's what you're going to get. Here's your reward. You're going to get a crown in verse 11. I don't know what a crown from Jesus looks like, but it's got to be amazing. In verse 12, you're going to be, in fact, a participant in the future millennial kingdom of God. This is what they were told they were being excluded from by the Jews. But he's saying, you're going to be a pillar in my temple, in my kingdom. Um, there's no temple right now. If you've been to Israel, there's the Temple Mount. Evidently, there's going to be another temple built. The Mount will be desecrated in the tribulation. But then there'll be another temple that will be, resurrect, will be made in the uh, millennial kingdom. This is metaphorical language. Be saying this, um, Brother Allen, you serve me faithful and you're going to be a pillar or like a pillar in my future temple. What was a, what was a, temp, what was a pillar? What was, it was something that was stable. It was something that was secure. It, it's where names were often inscribed in honor. Um, Alan McCoy belongs to me. It's that idea. You're going to be a pillar in my temple. You belong to me. You're going to be in my kingdom. You're going to be, this, you're going to be a central part of my worship. And he says, you're going to be a part of that if you stay faithful and, and, and true. He said, I'm going to have a name upon you. And it's going to be a name that identifies you with me. And it's going to say that you are mine. A lot of that doesn't mean a lot to us. But to these, to these early Christians, this was a big deal. I can't go home anymore and see my family. I can't, I, they won't let me in the synagogue anymore. I, just, my whole, I can't go shop where I used to shop. And he's saying, Hey, look here, I'm, I'm the Lord. I'm true. I hold the keys. You're going to be a pillar of my kingdom one day. Th these were all incredible words of encouragement to them. You're going to be part of the city that, look here, that man doesn't build, but that comes down from heaven. The new Jerusalem, can you imagine a city built by God? <laughs> he says, this, this is encouragement. You all are going to be a part of that. You may feel excluded right now. All of us maybe should feel a little bit of exclusion. But you're a part of what I'm doing. And that should be an encouragement. So what principle would I extract from this in three minutes? You ready? I want you to get this. This, is, this will change your life. And I mean that seriously. Present sufferings are worth enduring for life's future rewards. Now, I want you to take that home with you today. Present sufferings are worth enduring for life's future rewards. I mean that spiritually, and I mean that practically. Let me put it this way. Some losses incurred in the moment are worth the gain to come in the future. One of, one of our greatest human shortcomings is that you and I are short-sighted. We live for the moment. Now, I don't mean living in the moment. That's to be commended. Enjoy the day and today. 
But living for the moment isn't always wise. In other words, doing what's indulgent, doing what's easy, um, avoiding hard work, that's, that is not to be commended. Um, too many of us live indulgently. We make compromises far too easily. And we forfeit a better future by living at a low level right now. Whereas we don't pay a price for something tomorrow because it costs me too much today. In the text, the admonition and encouragement is this. Pay the price now. Pay the price now to be a part of something really extraordinary tomorrow. That's the entire admission of the text. Pay the price now. They're telling you're not a part. I'm telling you are a part. They're trying to exclude you, but I'm telling you, you're included in the greater reality. They're trying to take everything from you, but I'm telling you, they have nothing and I have everything. You're paying a price now, but I'm telling you, it's worth it because one day you're going to get a crown from me. And you're going to dwell in my kingdom in the heavenly city. And my name's going to be upon you. And you're going to be part of the millennial reign and then eternity for, forever. I'm telling you, serving me today will be worth it tomorrow. Amen. Now, I, I tell you, we say amen. We understand that. And then we go home and we turn on the TV. I'm not against TV, but we begin immediately to do what's Low living, easy. What's, what, 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 what's, we, we, we don't do the things that would actually improve our lives. We, we don't believe that giving work today will give us a better tomorrow. Their present predicament was worth enduring for a reward. Romans 8, the Apostle Paul lived by this. He says, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time... <clears throat> are not to be worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He's saying this, I, I, I have been beaten, I have been shipwrecked, I have been snake bit, all these things. But listen, I, those things are not even worth mentioning compared to the glory that going through that is going to afford me one day. Paul and John believed that, that being faithful and true were worth the price because the reward that would be procured in the future. Immediate gratification I want to help some people today. Look up here. Immediate gratification will never reward you as much as discipline, faithfulness, and doing what's right. Okay? Please, I implore and I beg of you to get this. I raised seven, Terry raised seven children and I helped. It was hard. It took our time. It took effort. It took money. It took sacrifice. It took time when they were running around crazy to discipline ourselves enough to discipline them so we could enjoy the moment and then tomorrow. But so many people, they're just, they're indulgent. And so they forfeit the work. Now look, do they get a reward in, by doing that? They certainly do. They get the ease of the moment. That's why they do it. But they're forfeiting so much. Right? Marriage is wonderful. It's not easy. Not always easy. 
And there's some people who just won't put forth the effort to make it better. And you're forfeiting so much. You know, it's everything, inflation, whew, everything costs more. It's not easy to save. It's, not, it's hard putting things towards retirement, right? And so we don't. Why? Because it rewards us in the moment. But it won't reward us as much as putting it away and having it there one day when we retire. You follow me on the thought? Doing what's right in a church isn't always easy for me or for you. And sometimes it's costly. And sometimes it's easier to turn my head or don't look at this or don't confront you. You don't confront me. But that, there's, there's that minimum reward of we avoid the confrontation. But down the road, it costs all of us, doesn't it? See, this is the idea. We, whether it's raising kids, future education, building a business, marriage, future retirement, or investment in the kingdom of God, you will always gain something small and minor. You will, indulgence always gets you what you want in the moment, but it never gives you what you really need for the future. That'd be true of food, of discipline, education, and serving God. We dumb down the cultural demands, the appetites of our flesh, taking the easy way. And God says, that's fleeting. That stuff's going to go away. You need to be putting treasures in heaven. Sacrifice and perseverance, in fact, will cost you something. Matter of fact, it may cost you your life. But remember, I'm holy. And I am true. And I have the keys of David. And if even you forfeit your life in this this life, I have a better for one, one for you in the future. So I want to end with this question or challenge. Practically, what are you sacrificing today so you can have a greater gain and reward tomorrow? And then how about spiritually? Are we willing are we willing to do what's right, to do what's necessary, to be faithful, to be witnesses, to live our faith honestly before God, even though it's hard for the greater reward tomorrow? And that's God's challenge to the Church of Philadelphia, and that's God's challenge to Eastland Baptist Church.